Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Welcome into another edition of South Beach Sessions. My name is Chris Whittingham, and this week's guest on South Beach Sessions is John Amici. He's appeared on the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz on a couple of occasions in recent weeks to discuss current events and to talk about the Carl Nassib story, him becoming another out athlete, although I say another, it's not really that common, but still noteworthy, and John was incredible on the subject. Would definitely recommend you find that episode of the show in our feed, but Dan actually explored more the psychological element of John's background. Now, played in the NBA, has obviously been an incredible advocate for social issues, but he is a clinically trained psychologist, and so Dan got into the psychology of the pandemic and a lot of what's going on in the world of current events. So here's Dan and John Amici for this week's Outbeat Session. As you know, John Amici and I have been friends for a very long time. When I started in radio nationally, Sunday mornings, he was one of the weekly guests. He and Shane Battier, Donald Foyle, we went around the NBA with some of the smartest guys, and I enjoyed talking to him about just about anything. He's gone on to become a clinical psychologist. He was, at the time, a very learned man, continues to be a very learned man. I don't need to introduce you to him anymore if you've been listening to the show for a long time. But one of the things that I wanted to talk to him about after maybe the weirdest year of everybody's life or this generation's life is just the blanket selfishness that has emerged from human beings that has been troubling and is so much worse than I thought it was, John. Like I, I underestimated the problems, the racial problems in America, even as someone who talked about them plenty. And I also underestimated just how selfish human beings are. And so let's start there. Are you not amazed as someone who has watched plenty of selfishness in his life, who in sports you get accused all the time of guys being selfish in sports? Are you not amazed as you see what is happening around the world just as it relates to the pandemic and what it has unleashed in this realm? I made a, a promise to my team on our huddle this morning that I would be positivity and light and sweetness today. And so on this show in particular, so I, I want to start with the generous interpretation of, of this. And then I, I want to talk a little bit about, if I can, the experience that I've had as a director of a hospital trust, 28,000 clinical and non-clinical staff going through the pandemic. I, I've done none of the hard work that they're, they're right there in PPE 14 hours a day. But the generous side of this is, because on the one hand, we, we all want to just be out. Well, many of us want to be outraged at, that, at what, on its face is pure selfishness. The idea that mask wearing is one of the most generous, civic-minded things you can do because the mask does not protect you. The mask protects other people. It is the combined wearing of masks that, pr that protects a society or a community. But an individual person who wears a mask, a mask is not protecting themselves as much as they are other people. 
from them, even if they are asymptomatic. But then I was thinking about this in order to try and find some sunlight here. And I think part of what we have to understand is that we've gone through a period over the last five or so years, or certainly the last presidential cycle in America, of extraordinary uh, disruption on any number of different levels. People find themselves waking up in the morning feeling like they're in free fall. And so in, in those moments, you grasp for anything you think you can have control over, anything that is mine. And, and then suddenly there's a group of people who, who grasp hold of the idea that if we make it seem like what's being controlled here is your breath, your very breath is being controlled and the government wants to do it, those scary combination of things. You get people who might not otherwise have objected to a public health message designed to save people's lives, who suddenly see this as the, and you and I have talked about how stupid the slippy slope is as a narrative, but people who thought that this was the beginning and the end is some outrageous conspiracy where you end up Bluetooth enabled because of a vaccine. That's the generous interpretation. That being said, I need to tell people, I have written more condolences letters in the last year and a bit than I ever thought I would in my life. The number of family members of colleagues I have gone up to and said, I am so sorry. <laughs> I remember one week and, and it's ridiculous really because no one person should stick in your mind. But in the midst of the first peak, we, we got a message about a 31 year old nurse who had died, got COVID, passed away in a matter of days and you suddenly realize this is not just about letting X percent of old people, whatever old is in this new world we live in, die. And the fact is that these people were all volunteers, in a sense, to die. They were all, yes, they get paid to do their job, but the rest of us got paid to do our job and stay away. These, these individuals got paid to be in the nexus of where danger was. And that's what makes it feel so selfish when I see people who won't wear a mask or who wear it over their mouth, but not over their nose, which people need to understand is the equivalent of wearing your underwear and having your penis hanging out. It defeats the purpose, sweetness and light. Why did you have to promise your staff sweetness and light? What is happening here? You don't come on here. You're not inherently pessimistic when you come on here. You're just surrounded right now by an environment that is so disrupted. You, you actually just you just expressed a viewpoint that I hadn't heard for the psychology. You actually tried to reach across for the psychology of why that's happening, because I have just been dismissing it as stupid, as not as arguing for the sake of arguing that, that you're not a freedom fighter when you're refusing to wear a mask to help others it's it's the bare it's such it's the smallest inconvenience that you're being asked to to take upon on behalf of others and yet you're still refusing yes it, it, there is a part of this that that there are some people who simply on principle i mean the thing that irritates me about where this mask thing went was the idea that it became a political issue if you wear a mask you're a democrat or a sheep if you don't wear a mask you are a patriot or a republican and, and that, to me, is, is what really blew my mind and made me rageful. The, the reason I'm trying to be balanced about it to start off with is simply because I did a podcast the other day with a colleague of mine, a, a psychologist who has a podcast, and, and it was so dark. <laughs> 
it was just he does he's a sports psychologist and it was so dark by the end of it i had to apologize to him and we're having to redo the podcast again so <laughs> i just needed to lift it up so we didn't go right to that point well why are we so divided though because i have on purpose you know the answer to this question i know you're asking because you're a smart person asking dumb questions to a smart person to get smart answers but listen you know, we all know why. This is on purpose. The, the history of America, indeed the history of the world, the history of Britain especially, is littered with examples of arriving at a place where what you do, you want to control everybody. And in order to do that, you create a bogeyman, you create a, a straw man, you create uh, uh, someone who is the other that you can blame. And, and so the idea that we are divided is not accidental. It would not suit... Republicans, especially in this particular moment, but Democrats nor Republicans are suited to the idea that people might be able to look across and say, well, actually, I like this policy that you do over here, and I like this policy that you do over here, and I want government that is more centrist, because what we've been doing is seeing that the the, the, the spectrum has been moving to the right now. So, you know, in Britain, we laugh at the idea that Democrats are left. They're not left. Even our Labour Party in Britain, which is our left-leaning party, supposedly, is centrist. We're divided because it allows people to people who are insufficiently equipped, certainly not as intellectually powered as they should be, to rule. Because while the proletariat are divided, fighting amongst themselves, convinced that their neighbour is the actual problem and not the person paying zero tax whilst taking billions home, that's a pretty easy group of people to rule. What do you make of the wealth disparity that continues to grow? What do you make of the Jeff Bezos of the world and the Elon Musks of the world making so much money during a pandemic that Bezos can get divorced, give away half his money, and then by the end of the pandemic, his wealth is even larger than it was before the pandemic started? I'm increasingly of a mind that there is there are amounts of money that people can earn where it cannot be earned without the exploitation of others. I think there are people out there who can make lots of money, obscene amounts of money, without exploiting a group of people. But I think when you start to get to these multiple billions and these numbers that are inconceivable, it just it seems impossible to me. I mean, how is it congruent in anybody's mind? And I shop at Amazon too by the way, and have done throughout the pandemic. But how is it congruent, the idea that you've got Amazon warehouse workers who live in their car and pee in nappies with the amount of wealth? It, it, surely there is a, and, and then there's that distribution of wealth word that kind of phrase that makes Americans just lose their mind. But surely in that environment, more lose and more breaks and me saying, oh, maybe I can't get my package until tomorrow instead of today is an acceptable compromise for human dignity. I, I don't know. I don't know when, I don't think we'll ever get there because I, I think there is this idea that if you make a lot of money, it is because you are better. And, and that isn't the case always. Often, perhaps. You got lucky, you had a better start. Your dad seeded you two million quid or whatever dollars. I, you know, people aren't exercised about this, Dan. People don't care about the wealth gap. People who are, the people who they see rough sleeping, that's their own fault. There's a reason we don't look at rough sleepers when we walk past them. It's the reason we feel not just a sense of embarrassment, but kind of irritation and anger. There's a reason we feel those things is because when we look at them, we know that, that 
They are a product of us. What we choose to do, they are a product of us. And it makes us uncomfortable when we have to witness it. I heard you talking the other day about biases and the specifics as it relates to the poor aren't necessarily poor because they have done something wrong or the rich aren't necessarily rich because they have done something right and tying it specifically into biases for the, for the people who don't know what I'm talking about there or haven't heard it. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. So this is simply the idea that with lots of different types of people, we have associations. And so with rich people, we associate them being clever. They must be clever. We also change how we characterize their weird behavior. So weird behavior by Elon Musk is a sign of genius. Strange behavior from the man who has sat outside your convenience store is a sign of mental illness. And we've decided those two things, not on the basis of any real foundation of understanding mental health, but simply because the context tells us that this person here who's on the side of the, re- the road or the side of the street or is a rough sleeper must inherently be bad, wrong, broken, must have missed opportunities. We especially think of poor people that they have squandered opportunities. That's why you hear people say things like, well, you're poor, but you've got an iPhone. <laughs> As if the two are correlated. As if the ability to spend a thousand pounds or 500 pounds or find it secondhand or whatever else is somehow correlated to your overall household income. It's amazing these weird ideas that we have. We have them about women. Uh, We have them about, obviously, black and brown people. We have them about people with certain personalities versus others. You know, introverts are weirdos and extroverts are how it's supposed to be unless you're in very specific jobs, in which case it sometimes reverses. These associations are dangerous though. It makes us lazy. It means that when we see one of those characteristics, we think we know the whole spectrum of a person. You see their blackness and you know everything you need to know about them. They're a good dancer. They've probably got a high density of fast twitch muscle fibers and they're probably thick. That's what we think we know about them. You look at a a Latinx, a, a person you think you know something about them. You look at You look at a person with a visible disability, a wheelchair user perhaps, and you think you know something about them. It's incredible what damage this does. What people don't seem to realize is that we have these ideas about people from about the time we're five years old. From by the time we're five, we know that white people are good and black people are bad. We know that white is pretty and black is ugly. From five years old, from about four years old, We know that there are things that girls should do and there are things that boys should do and boys that do girl things are weird and girls that do boy things are weird. We know this and it's dangerous, but we don't spend any time thinking about it or changing our behavior. If you can make a mask into a political statement, you can make anything into a political statement, right? I I found that part, that's another thing that I learned during this pandemic that I did not know before. Once that became about politics, I'm like, oh, you can do this with anything then. If you're if you're just not if you're going to ignore science and if you're just going to make opinions and facts hold equal weight, you can do this with anything. Yes, you can. You can, but but not just the American government, by the way, but the British government as well. Very famously, one of our politicians, one of our ministers said, maybe three or four years ago, um, a, a, an expert on international trade mentioned that Brexit could be harmful to our country, as it has turned out to be. 
Um, and this minister, I think it was Michael Gove, said, um, well, haven't we all had enough of experts? I mean, what a remarkable statement. And that, that's where we are right now. We're in this place where an opinion is equated to evidence-based fact. Where if you use the word theory at all, not understanding that in science it means a very different thing than an idea I saw on a toilet wall, then suddenly it's just the same thing. Like gravity, 30% of Americans, 30% of Americans aren't sure that the Earth is round, is a sphere. 30%. I don't know the stats for Britain. I think it's the kind of stat that people only do in America, but I imagine it's not dissimilar. 30%. A massive swathe of people think the Earth is less than 6,000 years old. This is not a, a condemnation of people's faith. It is simply the fact that everything that we have that works the way it works from our cell phones onwards can't work if that's true. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. We've, I don't know how we claw our, say, our way back, though, because people think it's um, arrogance to assert the primacy of facts over opinion when in fact there is nothing more arrogant than suggesting an opinion based on nothing other than whim and a Facebook post is equal to fact. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. What do you find most galling about how the world has handled the pandemic? Obviously, this is different by country, but most galling to you? The absolute, the willing ability to dissociate from the pain of others. Because people talk about the 600,000 people dead. In, in the United Kingdom, I think it's 133. 139 now, 136, something like that. 136,000 people dead in a country of this size. It's only like five of us. But there's this weird ability. When you cite those numbers to people, then people will immediately go and say, but that's only a tiny proportion of the population. Or they'll say, that's only X amount of the X percent of the people who die of cancer. And they'll they'll ignore the fact of two things. One, they didn't have to die. And there are other countries that we can look at who locked down earlier, who have face back face mask discipline, who have social distancing discipline who are really smart about businesses and and supporting businesses so they didn't go bust during this time, who don't have this num proportion of deaths. But, but isn't that, the thing that gets me is the idea that nobody thinks about the pain of that individual who's lost that person. That, 
almost you can see the picture of that person or you can't even see the I was going to say you could see the picture of that person lying dead in a hospital bed surrounded by their loved ones and you can't even see that because they didn't get to see their loved one before they died and the idea that people could talk about 10 100 nay 600,000 of those people without feeling a great sense of shame and that the inconvenience of smelling your own breath by wearing a, a mask kind of pales in comparison. If, I, if you could avoid one person experiencing that loss by wearing a mask, would you? And the answer is apparently mostly no. Such an interesting disconnect because I did think that the recent tragedy here in Miami where a building collapses did force an empathy on people because you saw the visuals and any of us, like with a plane crash, can imagine having your life extinguished like that. And so I do believe that in that instance, you don't have a division because people can reach compassionately into that space. And even if it's selfish saying, I can see that happening to me, that would be awful. I could see myself, you know, rummaging around trying to find a loved one. I believe it has to be that overt for, for people to find empathy sometimes. Why? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I would buy your hypothesis. I, I think it is one thing to suggest a just you know it's very tangible to see that when i saw that i was i was i was mortified i was terrified i knew it was miami i knew all of you were there or thereabouts and i didn't know whether it was you or your family members and so i that's what i thought of when i saw it happen but i don't have to be there i don't have to witness it firsthand i just have to know I just have to remember what it feels like. There are still days when I can't talk about my mother. I'm doing a speech and I've brought her into it because she's in everything. Um, she's in everything. <clears throat> See, it's happening now. And there are, just, there are just times when I can't talk about it because it's, it's so raw. It, it's physically painful. And I don't understand. It is not a special magic skill of mine that ties the pain that someone might feel that is parallel to that, if different. My mother died of cancer, but I don't imagine that those people sitting, not knowing if the 156 missing people are going to be found jubilantly alive or rather not. Who could not understand that pain? You don't, are you telling me people literally need to be in a COVID ward and see people gasping for breath de-elevated so that their head is below their, their body and legs, which is how you are in a COVID ward. It's deeply uncomfortable with forced air. All those people on ventilators knowing that for the vast majority of the time, if you go on a ventilator, you're not coming off it. And you have to witness it to understand the pain of the people, the family members watching, the partners watching, the children watching their parents, the... No. That is a failure of humanity, not of empathy. What gives you hope? I, su I suppose it is the idea that the profound ways that people can disappoint, not just me, but to disappoint us, the profound ways that humanity can disappoint is nearly always mirrored by profound ways that it can surprise. I know that there are corporations out there who don't care about climate change and people and politicians. And then 
like hope in Pandora's box, there is uh, a little neurodiverse child leading a movement in another direction. There are people who still beat up LGBTQ people on the street for holding hands. And then on the other side, there are children across America who see queerness differently. There are police who will put their knee on the neck of black people. And then there are people who will march in the street who have no connection to blackness themselves other than a sense of humanity disintegrating and they want to stop it. So every time I feel hopeless, I just know that somewhere, if I look hard enough, even on Twitter, there will be light. You speak of social media, and I do think that it is an addiction that has altered us and is accepted in a way that I'm surprised more more people aren't alarmed by the disease that it is. So I'm alarmed by some parts of social media, but the parts that I'm alarmed by are preventable, right? I mean, right now, Facebook is a, is a, is a serious, if not catastrophic threat to public health. If you go on Facebook, uh, I, I looked up the stats because I'm a nerd. If you if you if you go on if you look up the stats on on Facebook, you'll you'll discover that researchers have found that throughout the pandemic, if you look at the top ten official health institutions, things like the NHS in the United Kingdom, and you'll have uh, the WHO, the EDCA, sorry ECDAC. There's all kinds of different agencies for that are official health. The number of people who look for those on Facebook is sometimes outweighed threefold by the people looking to misinformation websites. And that includes websites from Iran that have been built in Iran and Russia simply for the purposes of spreading disinformation. So it's a public health threat, but it could be stopped. This is stoppable. They just simply don't want to stop it because it'll be inconvenient because there's now an audience for it. And so why would you remove a program for which there's an audience? Misinformation is now part of what they peddle. Twitter is full of trolls, people who say terrible things. I blocked 20 this morning again. Not quite. I think it was 18. But anyway, a number this morning. And you suddenly wonder, how are you, how are you still here in this world when the advertising that is targeted at me can, you know, can point exactly to what I want? And it's because they facilitate it. The idea that people have found a new way to communicate, a new way to do community, that's not the scary part. The fact that <clears throat> we haven't developed any rules of civility there that have any consequences, that's the scary bit for me. Well, we're not. I'll get into some more things because I'm spending all my time afraid these days. I'm more scared than I've ever been. I, I, I did not think of myself as living a life filled with fear, but I see everything that's happening. And I would say I'm more scared than I've ever been. But one of the things that scares me is that we will not, we will not as a community, as a group, as human beings, as a race, a human race, we will not give up enhancements of any kind in order to reduce the pain and suffering of others. This is, isn't that the weird part though? I think this is, this is the pit where we've missed a point here. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, the mild inconvenience that is caused whether it is paying an additional 2p in tax 
for those who can clearly afford it. And it is always for people who can clearly afford it. The cost is always less than one cup of coffee a year when you talk about some of these tax increases to do things like socialized medicine or do things like education, making it much cheaper and more universally across the country consistent. They're just cheap. The, the reason we don't do them is not because they, they inconvenience us. We wouldn't really miss that one, I don't know, Starbucks coffee. That's not what we, it's just the indignancy of giving away goodies to people that we think are baddies. This is the narrative. If you look in the media, anytime there is a narrative about providing something to somebody, you have to turn them into a baddie. So then it's a goodies for baddies. Oh, so you want to give an education to people in prison? Well, yes, I do, actually. I think it would be a really good idea. You want to give training on how to survive so that the recidivism rate comes down from 80%? Yes, that would be a brilliant idea. Oh, you want to give poor kids food in the summertime? We had that in Britain. Our government wasn't going to give poor children their free school meals because schools went on in the summertime because of uh, COVID. They're not bad kids. They're not terrible children because their parents don't have money. Their parents don't have money, not because they are slackers, but because we're in an environment where big corporations can pay people not enough money to live and then force the government to subsidize it. And then instead of being mad at the corporations, we're mad at the people. Dignity is not a finite resource. I know everything else is. I know money is. I know all this power maybe. But dignity is not a finite resource. It's one of the few things that when you take it from you and give it to someone else, both parties get more. I wish people would recognize that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What needs to happen for them to recognize it? Better leadership. The current leadership will never allow that. And I'm talking about the broad leadership of the country, not just not just the one particular party, but the broad leadership of the country in Britain and in America right now will not allow that because that revelation would radically shift how you felt about most of the tenets of the way you live at the moment. You know, I remember the furore that, that occurred when we had to put our, in Britain, we've got these bins that you put your household food waste in. Absolute outrage. People were outraged that they had to get their hands slightly slimy touching banana skins that they put in this bin, this green bin, and then all, then it was gone. These tiny inconveniences, they just, they don't, they're meaningless in the moment. And if we can just realize they're meaningless in the moment, it feels big because it's something you've not been asked to do before, but it's not a big deal. And the, the upside is massive. The upside is massive. But we need better leadership for that. And we won't vote it in at the moment because there are people who just prefer. Sometimes even when the status quo is shitty, it's better and less fearful than the idea of a change to something, even if that something is better. That's a weird quirk of human nature. Sometimes even when you're in the doghouse, the trip to the porch, to get into the house itself 
can be more frightening than just staying where you are. And politicians do a very good job of reminding us that it's safer where you are. It's not great, but out there there's immigrants. Out there there's people who tell you to wear a mask. Out there there are vaccines that'll make you Bluetooth enabled. Out there there's black people who steal you, your wallet, rape your children, stay where you are. How much more overt does it have to be, though, Meech, when you're talking about a pandemic and wildfires and just some of the things that are happening that clearly require some change or it's going to get much worse? And this is what scares me. Like, I don't know how much more obvious if if a pandemic that's killing people won't get you to wear a mask and and wildfires make California literally catch fire with, you know, something I didn't know was possible, a fire tornado, because we are doing such crazy things to the environment. What do I have to do? What do I have to put in front of people to get their attention to change the behavior? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, I spent some time this morning, very early, um, listening to a, a a book on conspiracy theories and how they most often propagate during a time of disruption. And if you noticed every time there was something, so when there was the wildfires and they first started, and this was under Trump's, uh, I know it's not when they first started, but when they started being really terrible um, and Trump went around saying, well, it's about forest management. Here's your conspiracy theory, right? It's not about climate change, this big problem that's too big for you to get your head around. It's about this tiny problem that you can blame a person or an institution for. There's the bogeyman, right? It's actually not you. Because one of the things that reliably human beings will enjoy at any moment is the idea that something catastrophic happens and a reassuring voice tells you, don't worry, it's not you. It's him over there. That's what politics has got perfectly right. It understands that if you can point to a tribal thing, oh, your daughter was was shot in a drive-by? That's not, you think it's guns? No, it's, it's not guns. See that guy over there with the gun? It, it was him. And it's not that that person is not individually responsible, but the nature of guns in, in America is, is why it's happening. The false idea that you can really defend yourself with one. It's not me, it's him. It's the most compelling narrative to keep everything the same as possible. If you watch the news now, I hope people who are listening, if they watch the news, watch the news for the bogey people. Watch the news for the, the, the line that just tells you, it's not you, it's them. Tesla has a crash, a Tesla, and it's not that I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, because I'm not, but a Tesla has a crash on the motorway when it was in that, that automatic cruise control thing. And that's a problem of the AI, not the fact that the person at the wheel was asleep. It's, it's not me. It's that guy in some part of Southern California or Texas, where the hell he is. Can you help us be less scared? Because I don't know that we've achieved sunny and light here. I don't, I don't think that it's total despondence. My questions are fear soaked, but can, can you make us feel better about things? Can you make me and the audience feel slightly less scared about our future. There's a line from a Sherlock Holmes novel where he's talking to Watson and he says to Watson, Watson says something that, that sparks an idea and helps solve the case. And, and, and Sherlock looks at Watson and says, 
Watson, whilst yourself, you are not luminous. You are a tremendous conductor of light. This is true of all of us. We don't all have to be remarkable to make a difference. Each one of us has a capacity to do some good. It's boring and most people won't notice and you'll probably not get any awards for it. But each one of you has a sphere of influence of which you can have some control. And each one of you has the ability to conduct messages that you think are positive and good and make a, a contribution and an ability to not pass on those messages or not even confront those messages that you think are negative, just shut them out. It's not that you don't need to know what's going on. It's not about living in a bubble. It's simply, you know, you don't have to conduct that anti-vaxxer thread through your social media out to someone else's. That's why I block on social media. It's not because I'm unwilling to engage in conversation. These are trolls. They want me to be a conductor of their darkness, and I will not. And anytime I see something good, Rex Chapman, I know he's been on the friend of the show, he, you know, every time he posts something that's just glorious, there's the light and I will be the conductor of it. This is why there's hope. We are not all luminous, but we are tremendous conductors of light. How do you personally stay out of despair in these times? Attacked from every angle, for black, for gay, for liberal, for whatever it is, for too opinionated, loudmouth, uh, atheist. I'm not liberal. I'm progressive. You know what? I don't, I don't know. I am, if I am limping into my holiday, I'm, I'm hoping that I can go away this year. There are 52 days until I go to Mykonos and sit on a beach, listen to audiobooks, drink overpriced bad rosé. I'm just limping into it. I, it feels some days like I'm just dragging my body there. And once, if I can just have my two weeks, I'll be all right. But again, the other part is you've got to have something like that where you can just kind of shut everything out and just, I need to soak in the light again. But the other thing is that I just have great, I have great friends. I've got, you know, outside of when we talk here, I've got you. I've got a bunch of people who every time I look at their work, there's a little kind of hope vaccination. It's brilliant. You are a source of light for the audience. They love hearing from you, and I hope that you limp into that recharge sphere and that some of it is spent in Miami and the drinks are on me, sir. See you then. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start, same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.